It's the Growing for Market podcast. This lady, she cuts the line and she's like, I'm so sorry. I know I could just pick a bouquet you have on your rack. They're all beautiful, but I have a really special request. So she, you know, was telling me what she wanted and she's like sunflowers and feverfew. And she's like, yeah, just make it really, really bright and vibrant. I make her bouquet and she starts like weeping. And then she explained to me that the bouquet was for her mother who was dealing with Alzheimer's and her mother was starting to lose her vision. But when she saw the bouquet and how I made it, she said that she knows when her mother sees it because her the only thing her mother can really see are the bright colors. It will make her mother smile. To her, it meant everything. Hello and welcome to the Growing for Market podcast where we talk about growing, marketing, and the business of growing vegetables and flowers for local markets like farmer's markets, CSAs, farm stands, and local wholesaling. I'm Katie Kula, your host and a writer for Growing for Market magazine. For 32 years, the only magazine devoted solely to flower and vegetable market farmers. If you're enjoying the podcast, just wait till you see the magazine. Go to growingformarket.com for more. Also, if you could give us a follow and a rating, it really helps other like-minded people find the podcast. And now let's take a minute to hear from our sponsors. It's with their generous support that we can bring you the podcast for free. Whether it's tomatoes to market, flowers in the spring, or vegetables for your family, growing in a greenhouse protected from the weather provides the right environment for a harvest you can count on. Rimmel greenhouses are strong, durable, and easy to assemble, offering the quality that you need to grow productively year-round. Rimmel greenhouses are proudly built right here in America and shipped to anywhere in the U.S. With technical sales staff members located across the country, many with growing experience, the Rimmel Greenhouses team of experts will serve as your trusted partner every step of the way to ensure that you get exceptional value from your greenhouse investment. Visit Rimmel.com to get a quote today. Every fall on our farm, we order a couple sling bags of Fort V potting soil from Vermont Compost. Over the years, we've tried a lot of the compost and potting soil options out there, from making our own to buying off the shelf. And we keep coming back to Vermont Compost, both for overall quality and batch-to-batch consistency. It's that consistency that keeps us coming back. There are so many variables that affect how good your seedlings are. We know Vermont Compost will give our plants the best possible foundation, so we can stick to worrying about all the other stuff and not the potting soil. Visit vermontcompost.com slash GFM for more details. Hello, everyone. Today, I am speaking with Tracy Yang of Jonko Flowers. Tracy is a first-generation Hmong American and second-generation flower farmer. Tracy and her family farm four acres in Monroe, Washington, located about 45 minutes northeast of Seattle. Although primarily market farmers, Jonko Flowers has grown their business to include a steadily growing flower CSA. Jonko Flowers sells 80% of their flowers direct to consumer because Tracy says they value the direct connection they have to their community from selling this way, something I bet many of our listeners can relate to out there. Tracy, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm excited. Yay, me too. Okay, so first of all, I always like to start at the beginning 
and hear how people got to where they are today. Like many people, it sounds like the 2020 pandemic lockdowns were a pretty life-changing event for you and your family, especially with the farming piece of it. Can you tell us more about this and how that led to where Jonko and you and your family are today? Yeah. So how I became a farmer is uh, by complete accident. And like you mentioned, it was really like the COVID-19 pandemic. It put me out of a job. I had a career in fitness. I was a personal trainer and massage therapist. And I had an eight-year career in that. And then, you know, of course, pandemic happens, everything shuts down. So I lost my job. But my sister, she got married and moved out to the Seattle area, I want to say a little over 20 years ago now. And since then, my mom has been out here seasonally. So she comes every season to do the flower business with my sister. But with COVID-19, all the farmers markets over here, they were shut down. So being primarily market farmers, it was like, oh, wow, like we have thousands and thousands of flowers in the ground, no way to move this product. What do we do? And on top of that, nobody was, at least among farmers, nobody was on Facebook. Nobody was on Instagram. Nobody had social media. So that changed everything for the Hmong farmers too. So, you know, my sister's like rushing and trying to throw together these social media profiles. And that's pretty much how we were selling our flowers was, hey, we're doing daily posts. Like this is what we have. Comment or send us a message and we'll do contactless delivery. If you're not in the Seattle area, something about the Seattle area is that traffic is a huge mess. So with that, driving is just something that my sister does not like to do very much. So she was like, I will harvest my flowers and I will make all the bouquets possible. I will not drive. I will not deliver. But everybody was like, well, how else are you going to get your flowers to people? So that's where I come in. And she's like, well, Tracy's not doing anything. (laughs) She can be my delivery person. So yeah, I was like, okay, sure. Because she was right. I wasn't doing anything besides watching Netflix. So yep, I became her delivery person. And from there, just kind of started learning about flowers and then I also met Nick during the pandemic. So, but by, in addition to selling at Pike Place, my sister also has a produce stand in the city of Bellevue. So the city of Bellevue was gracious enough to allow them to reopen the produce stand despite the COVID-19 pandemic happenings. But of course we had to put up signs and a bunch of like barriers. And so we opened Mother's Day that year was absolutely nuts. The line was like two blocks long. Oh my gosh. To just to buy bouquets. And, you know, I brought Nick along to help the family. And usually for us, Mother's Day, you know, like when you're the ones making the bouquets and you see that long line, and we always make our bouquets on the spot, we never like pre make mm. or anything like that. So. For us, it's like, oh, it's really daunting and it puts a lot of pressure on us. But for Nick, you know, he was the face. He was the front man handling all that. He was like, this is so fun. We should do this. And I was like, are you kidding me? (laughs) 
no thanks. I don't want any part of this. And I was hoping that my mom didn't hear because I knew that if she heard, she would tag along with that sentiments. But of course she heard. So she was like, yes, you guys totally should. So they bugged me for about like a month or two after that about joining the family trade and becoming a farmer. And I finally caved and was like, all right, I'll make you guys a deal. I'll give it one season. If I don't like it, you guys drop it and we just move on with their lives. But if I do like it, then we'll continue. All right. So they agreed. Obviously, turns out I liked it. (laughs) So I'm still here, right? This is season four for us. So here we are. We're doing all right. So is this the same farm that your sister and mom were running? Or did you and Nick start your own, is Johnco your own separate operation? Johnco is our own separate operation. I say separate, but if you were to like actually run a day in the life with us, you would see that it's pretty much an extension of the family business. So (laughs) yeah, that's just kind of how it worked. So are you on the same land then that your nope, sister we're, No, no, okay. Yeah, we're we're on a different land and you know that's actually something that I think a lot of BIPOC growers deal with which is land access. So, you know, I don't own my farm. I I lease my farm. So mm-hmm. And you know, that has its own challenges, but so that's kind of so you know, like could I if there was land available where my mom and my sister currently set up yeah I totally would have been like yeah you know let me just go right there next to you guys but there wasn't so that was a whole hunt in and of itself too yeah so we just ended up establishing in Monroe and you know everything happens for a reason and I actually think it's kind of actually worked out in terms of like the whole scheme of things. Where are they farming in relation to you being in Monroe? They're incarnation. Okay. Yeah. And that's about like 50 minutes to an hour south of Monroe. Okay. Right. Well, and when we're talking about if your primary markets are in that greater Seattle area, I mean, it's a very sprawling area. (laughs) So I have to imagine there's a certain distance one has to get from, say, Pike Place Market to even be on farmland to begin with. Yeah. Yeah. So you have that added challenge of being in a very developed place as well. Yeah. Yeah. How did you find the land in Monroe? I really have to thank, you know, my fellow Hmong community farmers for that. So it's just asking around like, hey, do you have land left where you farm? And I want to say it took about, took about, four maybe five months until we reached the right person and she was like oh yeah there is (laughs) so you know I was like hey I you know if it's not too much to ask can you pass along phone number and let's get this started and yep so we got lucky honestly Mm -hmm. so (laughs) yeah I'm grateful and it was unbroken land it covered in blackberry oh um, so the cleanup <laughs> sucked but we're making it work yeah and it took it took a while to like 
get rid of all the blackberry and yeah. well we made it work we made it work so <laughs> what kind of process did you have to do i mean i'm also in the northwest for people who are not in the northwest <laughs> if you don't necessarily yeah. understand what it means for a lot to be covered in blackberries i mean this is a a cane plant that will grow 10 feet tall and the canes will get to be like an inch thick and they're huge, huge thorns. Yes. Very invasive blackberry. So I actually kind of made a deal with the landlord. I was like, look, <laughs> because you want me to take this land on and I'm willing to, you have to agree to be the one to cut it down. Oh, so he was like, fair. I will okay. cut it down. So he cut it down. It took him two weeks to cut it down. And I assume with machinery of some kind. Yeah. Yeah. He had like two different mower attachments on two different tractors. And him and his son, he was explaining to me, like him and his son, they just, <laughs> it took them a really long time to cut everything down. And he had inherited that farm from his father. It was a former bamboo farm. So he was like, wow, I don't think I've ever seen that cut down before. Like, it's kind of nice to see it all cut down. And then from there, I was like, well, how about this? You also have to plow the land for us. <laughs> and then he was like, all right, fair, fair. Okay, I'll do that. So we got him to plow it once. And then from there, we had a bunch of wheelbarrows. And yeah, my family and I were just out there picking up as many blackberry roots mm. as possible and just dumping them. So it was a brutal process. We had to, some areas we dug by hand and then we did have to have someone come out, plow it again. And then after that second time, we were like, all right. That's going to have to do for the first season, <laughs> planting on this land. And then, yep, we tilled it and then just kind of left it as is. And then whenever we, if we encounter another like huge chunk of roots again, we just, we just hand dig. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of how it's been. It's just been like a slow battle, cutting it back. Yep. And then when we're weeding, you will see like, little leaves poking up, cut it down right away. Don't give it the energy that it needs to, you know, continue growing. So that's still ongoing battle, but I think it will always be because like you, you're, you're from the Pacific Northwest. You, you've seen how the black. It, they will just gets. come back. <laughs> yeah. That's why I was like, that's, that's forever an ongoing battle for us. And, but it's where it is now compared to where it was four seasons ago is way better way better much much better than it was when we first started so yeah i mean i look at your instagram and your website and you have a beautiful flower farm <laughs> so Thank you. yeah i mean it, it doesn't it's not just like a blackberry mess that's quite a testament yeah, that's, yeah. A, that's a big project <laughs> yeah no it took it took a lot of work but yeah you know we made it work and we, we don't use landscape fabric or plant and fabric at all either so okay yeah it's just a staying on top of that, the mowing, the upkeep right? Um, as best as possible. So. Which with what I know about blackberries is probably actually a good idea because they could grow under there and you wouldn't know. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. They have a way of creeping in when you're not looking. So that's, (laughs) that might be more work, but probably in the long run will serve you well, being able to see them every time they pop up. And now let's take a minute to hear from our sponsors. It's with their generous support that we can bring you the podcast for free. I am so excited to welcome Bootstrap Farmer as a sponsor of the podcast. I've known them for a dozen years, and if anyone tells you nothing is made in the USA anymore, well, they're headquartered and warehoused in Paris, Texas. They make their own all-metal, all-inclusive greenhouse frames of steel made in the USA and fabricated in Texas, and their heavy-duty, reusable propagation and microgreens trays are Midwest-made. With a complete range of supplies, they have just about everything for propagation and growing, including heat mats, ground cover, frost blankets, silage tarps, irrigation, and trellising. Want to color code your seed starting flats? They've got heavy-duty trays that will last for years in a full range of colors, great for keeping farm seedlings separate from retail or just for fun. And they have an experienced team of growers to support everything they sell. If you've heard of the NRCS High Tunnel Initiative providing grants for hoop houses but have been put off by the paperwork, Bootstrap Farmer has a guide that will walk you through the application process so you can get your hoop house funded this winter. For all that and more, check out Bootstrap Farmer at bootstrapfarmer.com. Start 2024 off right with Local Line. Local Line is the all-in-one sales platform for direct market farms and food hubs. Increase your sales and streamline your processes with features including e-commerce, inventory management, subscriptions, online payments, and more. Trusted by thousands of farmers across North America, Local Line is the platform you need to take your farm to the next level. Subscriptions start as low as $39 per month. Try Local Line today and receive a free premium feature for one year and receive 15% off Local Line's marketing services using the coupon code Growing for Market. That coupon code is Growing. The number four, market, growing for market, all one word, for 15% off Local Line's marketing services and one free premium feature for a year at Local Line. And now back to the show. So what is the soil type like there now that you've liberated this land from the blackberries and are, are cultivating again? What's the farming condition for you now? Yeah, it's very sandy soil. Mm, which probably helps actually with the blackberry removal. Mm-hmm. Very sandy soil. You know, it actually doesn't have as much trouble retaining moisture as much as I initially thought. But of course, once it hits like July, August out here in the Pacific Northwest, well, we do have to start irrigating a little more. But other than that, I'm actually quite surprised. And it's probably because we're right by the river. So our water table is that is probably pretty high. So that tends to help. But yeah, we have very sandy soil, zero nitrogen, but super high in phosphorus. And with, and I actually think this is because of the blackberry, but it, we have a, a lot of organic matter. Mm-hmm. in the soil according to the soil tests i got done interesting yeah exactly it's a very interesting mix so depending on what it is that we plant i do have to amend with alfalfa okay or kelp meal but other than that i honestly plant and just kind of let mother nature do its thing a lot of times i would say 95% of the time. Mm, so, wow. Yeah. Yeah. 
That's pretty cool. And your climate's pretty mild overall, right? Like not ever too cold, not ever too hot. Yeah, I have noticed within the past couple seasons, it is getting colder, mm. but it's not too bad. And I'm originally from the Twin Cities, oh, so yeah. <laughs> where so it's much milder. Yeah, where we have super harsh winters. Yeah. So when I say that temperatures aren't too bad, anything above zero for me is not too bad because <laughs> I'm used to 20 below and even worse. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it it must it doesn't probably drop that far below freezing where you are very often. In no, the no, I think the lowest I've seen it was last winter it got to 10 degrees and that was oh, oh that's pretty cool but yeah yeah right yeah one day of 10 degrees is different than a month of 10 degrees huh exactly yeah it was like one day and then the next day it was like 35 and i was like mm-hmm. yeah, see all is good <laughs> yeah so i want to ask about the name of your fern Junko, which uh, this will be in the show notes so people will be able to see it, but it's for people who are just listening and maybe haven't seen that. It's spelled J-A-R-N and then Co, like company. Where does the name come from? I wasn't familiar with the word or name. Yeah, so the word Jant is actually a Thai word and when translated into English, it means moon. So my partner, his name is Nick, and his last name is Song Seng Chantara, when you um, Thai pronunciation. So that John in there is what you're hearing. And fully translated, his name means um, moonlight. So he has a very beautiful last name. And here in the Pacific Northwest, you'll see that a lot of the Hmong farmers, they name their farms after themselves or or a familial figure that is important to them. Mm-hmm. So, but Nick was like, oh, well, what do you think about this, Tracy? Instead of a Hmong name, why don't we change it up and put a Thai name in there if you are okay with that? And I was like, I'm totally okay with that. I think that's really cool. So yeah, the name stuck and it certainly does help us stand out, not just amongst Hmong farmers, but I think just amongst farms in general. And here we are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that's kind of the story of uh, how we got our name, John Flowers. And I think we settled on, instead of just like John Family Flowers, we decided on Co because Nick and I have really like entrepreneurial spirits. So... We kind of left it open to like, what if one day we decide to do more than flowers? We can add on like John Co. Blink. So, yeah. Yeah, that's it. I will tell you, after somebody having a farm for a long time, I think that's a really good branding choice to have some flexibility. Like we, <laughs> this is silly and aside, but we put organics at the end of our name. So it was Oak Hill Organics. And then it took away all our flexibility to whether we wanted to stay certified or not. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it was, and it, there were years where we were like, we really don't want to be doing this, but we legally had to. So just if you're thinking about a name out there, folks, for your farm, this is a good point from Tracy. Think about all the possible things you might want to do or not do 
with that name because farms and businesses, they sure can evolve a lot. I think that's an excellent point. You know, what starts as a flower farm could end up a restaurant. I mean, you don't even know, like there's so many different directions you can go within various adjacent industries. So exactly. And Nick's family has background in restaurants. So that's kind of where he was thinking about that too. Like, what if one day we wanted to do vegetables too? And we end up, you know, so he was like dreaming real big. Like we end up having our own restaurant. And I was like, I'm not doing that. I'm for sure <laughs> not doing that. <laughs> I was like, veggies I'll add, but not, not a whole restaurant empire. <laughs> no, I'm with you after selling to restaurants for so many years. You know, people think farming is a lot of work, but at least we usually go to bed when it's dark. <laughs> I go to bed when it's dark and Yeah, the restaurants we worked with, they work so hard. hard. So hard. Yeah. I think that like for me the the physical labor is tolerable. Yes, it, it is hard. Mm-hmm. But I, I also think it's in the moment. Right. Yeah. And so that physical labor does have an end at the end of the day, right? But for me it's the the selling that was really difficult to get a grasp of for the, the flower business. And I was coming from a service profession, right? So for me, it was kind of difficult at first to learn how to switch from selling and marketing a service to a product. So. Right. Right. The pricing structure is so different, right? You were saying you were a personal trainer and doing massage work. So then you're thinking, what are all my costs and how do I think about that on a per hour basis versus like, how do I get all my costs plus my own income built into like a bouquet price? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, such a different way of thinking about it. <laughs> yeah, completely. Yep. And there's, a, I would imagine, a lot more costs involved with a farm than with yes. what you were doing before. Oh man, a whole lot more. Mm-hmm. A whole lot more. <laughs> and there's, there's, I, in my opinion, there's always like unexpected costs. I'm always like, okay, um, like just earlier today on the phone with my mom, I had to tell her to stop. I was like, stop. Our costs are getting out of control. <laughs> she, she was like, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this time of year, is it what kinds of costs are coming up for you all? Is it seed and amendments that are coming up right now or yep seed amendments oh because this is january everybody just so you know when we're doing this interview so very much winter (laughs) yes seed amendments if there's any structures we are building that will be discussed during this time as well we also like to think about like the bouquets we need during the season so what supplies do we need to make that like craft paper do we need more craft paper do we need mm-hmm. rubber bands we just like to get as much of that before the season starts because it just from past experience it really sucks to like run out in the middle of the season and then you have to it's like one more thing in your schedule that you have to just kind of work into like needing to restock it right yeah, so. yeah. So you're right now you're trying to anticipate sort of the season's needs ahead of time. So you can just go. Okay. And I do force tulips. So as of last year, I started forcing tulips. So my season actually starts in February in a few short weeks here. So that's part of why 
my mom is like really antsy and <laughs> she's like, come on, we need to be prepared. <laughs> yeah. So I had to be like, mom, stop. We don't need that. We're, we'll be fine. <laughs> okay. Backtracking a little to sort of the timeline of your farm. So you got looped into the family farm in 2020. When did you and Nick get on your own land? Was it that same year or was it the next year? It was that same year. It was towards the end of, I want to say, like September. Oh, yeah. So you two really dove in. Yeah, we did. I don't recommend anyone do it the way that I did. Please don't. <laughs> <laughs> because it was just so fast between decision and and doing it or yeah it was so fast and you can burn out really quickly you can start to hate it really quickly the financial burden of doing that can be really daunting i honestly think if my family wasn't involved in the business like if it wasn't a, a familial venture for me i would have started small i would have been like quarter acre yeah of an acre. <laughs> what is, it's four acres that you have is that right it's four acres okay yeah that's a lot of flowers yeah we don't ever plant all four at the same time so yeah if you come for anybody that ever comes look at the farm you'll never see it's it's never four acres all at once that's in production and that's on purpose because you know we you need to save room for succession planting and you need to think ahead of the forthcoming season right so if i like for example right now i have all my spring flowers planted on one part one side of the farm and then i'll have my perennials on a completely different area and then i have a whole another section that i'm like planning out for, all right, so while the spring flowers are blooming, this area over here needs to be planted for production next, right? So it's one big rotation of the four acres. That makes sense. Yeah. And as far as your sister and your mom, it sounds like in the timeline you were talking about, did your sister start the farm out here 20 years ago when she moved out? And how much involvement or exposure did you have to all this before 2020? Is it something that you were just kind of around, but you didn't necessarily engage with? Or you grew up with it, or it was a little later? Yeah, my sister actually inherited the business. So she married into the family. They've already been doing it for 20 years out here in the Pacific Northwest. So her in-laws were originally a part of the project that the King County and Pike Place Market sponsored in the 1980s. They were a part of that project. So they retired and then her, my sister and her husband decided to take over. Okay. So she inherited her business. So my sister does not know the burden of starting completely from scratch. Right. Yeah. So her story and my story, like we completely differ. Even her sales channels, she inherited, right? So she inherited her spot at Pike Place. She inherited the Bellevue Produce Stand. So again, like for her, it was a turnkey business. She literally just jumped in, had to learn how to 
sow seeds and plant. That was really it. But yeah, for me, I had to start from scratch. But going back to your question on how involved was I, I spent a lot of summers out in the Pacific Northwest actually helping my sister. So I never like did a lot of the farm work. I would maybe on occasion help her harvest. And when I say help, I really didn't help. I was frolicking, okay? I was <laughs> like, oh, wow, look at the flowers. I mean, that was, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the field of flowers sounds perfect for frolicking. Yeah, I would be like, oh, wow, look at the flowers. Back then. But I would be her uh, cashier. Because I, like I said, we never pre-make bouquets. We always make them fresh on the spot. By me being her cashier, it freed her attention up. So she can just focus on pushing out bouquets. So through being her cashier, though, you know, I started to learn how to identify flowers and just basic floral care. Things that you would need to explain to a customer. I learned from the years of being her cashier. So that was my involvement with the business prior to becoming a farmer myself. And in my opinion, it it was very minimal. Like, it may sound like a lot, but a lot of it was me just like, for what I remember as a teenager, I was just, I I spent a lot of time just like playing, like, oh. (laughs) And yeah, just... I didn't do very much. So, yeah, well, it's more exposure than probably most teenagers have to flower farming. I hear what you're saying that then when you decide to start your own farm, you're like, whoa, wait a second, what's actually happening here? Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> like, oh, there's a well, lot to this. <laughs> exactly. I was like, oh, it's a lot more than just, oh, I've never seen this tulip before. What is it? Oh, it's a peony tulip. <laughs> And then is your, I assume that now that lockdowns and everything are over, your sister's farm is back to being at Pike Place Market and mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. Yep. Yep. okay. I think as of the, I think in 2021, they reopened. They still had the regulations up like six feet apart and masks have to be worn and all that. But yeah, but we're we're years out from that now, so Yeah, I was just there a few weeks ago, around Christmas time actually. Yeah. I was there during Christmas. I was shocked at how packed it was. I was like, Whoa, I don't think I've seen it like this be since pre pandemic, you know? So it made me really happy to see that the foot traffic there is back up again because I know that a lot of the Hmong farmers there, they were getting a little worried because they were like, oh man, no foot traffic, no sales. So yeah, I'm glad to see that people are, are hanging out there again. So Now you and Nick have had to, as you say, start from scratch basically. Although obviously you have great resources as far as learning and figuring things out and that means establishing your own sales channels. It sounds like you have several, some markets, but you also offer a flower CSA. And it looks like that's something that you're emphasizing going forward. I did like that I saw on your website, you offer six week seasons, which is awesome. I imagine that feels a lot more doable for somebody who might not already be budgeting for weekly flowers in their household budget. And yeah, tell us more about the CSA and how you organize it and what the reception has been like for that. Yeah. So I was actually very hesitant 
on a CSA because I realized that you're kind of making like empty promises to people, right? Like, hey, support me and hopefully you'll get something. So at first I was not big on that. But what I saw my first season of being a farmer and selling flowers was that an issue of accessibility. Flowers are, they are completely a luxury item. And what I was seeing that was that only people that had disposable income would regularly purchase flowers. They would be the ones to go out of their way to purchase flowers, you know? So that's kind of what made me reconsider the CSA. And then the six-week idea came because (laughs) two reasons. One, yes, accessibility, trying to make the subscription more affordable to a larger audience. But also my first season with the CSA, I did a 12-week CSA. It was not fun delivering for 12 weeks straight. I was like, okay, it gets old for me after a while. So, and I kind of found that after the six week mark, I was kind of like, some of the customers were saying like, oh, I wish we had more of this. I wish you had more of that. So it was like, I had to constantly explain the seasonality of flowers, right? Mm -hmm. So like, well, I know you like tulips, but. I don't have them all the way through, like, I don't have them year round and I'm a flower farm. So what you're getting is you're getting things that I'm growing on my farm. So you're, you're not, I'm like, I'm not buying these flowers and we're not reselling them to you. So, yeah. So I think that was a little hard for customers to grasp at first too. The first season I did a CSA. So yeah, there were a lot of lessons learned that first season and I only had like four subscribers that first season. So I was like, okay, well, I'm glad it was a small audience to start, but regardless, there were a lot of lessons learned. So yeah, I learned from that, that I'm a really like prideful person too. Like I want to always be like proud of my work and proud of, like, I want to be able to confidently stand behind everything that I do. And I give out to the world, right? So that was also another factor into shortening things into a six-week period. And instead of focusing on, like, the length of the CSA so much, I focused more on the crop because I was noticing that that is what my audience was more familiar with. So instead of being, like, flowers for 12 weeks, that was a little too, like, vague. But if I were to say tulips... For six weeks, they would get excited about that. And then by doing that also, I was, I mean, notice it was like training the customers on what to expect, right? So they can go, oh, okay. So if I say winter tulips for six weeks, I started February. So if you consider that when we get into March, spring is starting to approach. So by then I jump into the spring tulips CSA. So could somebody commit to a full season of flower flower CSA with us? Absolutely. But I'm not going to hold them to that, you know, like, hey, if you like tulips, 
you just have to sign up for tulips. If you like peonies, you just have to sign up for peonies. So I did try a pickup option last year for the CSA. There were zero takers. So (laughs) I, yeah, so I was like, oh, okay. So that is what people are into is uh, convenience and delivery. So yeah. So you're delivering these to people's homes directly? Yes, I'm delivering to people's homes. So that's something that I also realized was they are willing to pay a little more for me to deliver than a cheaper price and be like, Hey, you have to come here and pick it up every week. So it worked out. And ever since I started doing the six week delivery period, like the six week period for CSAs, I actually think I've gotten a better response. And Nick and I, are also happier people. So yeah, <laughs> yeah it's just worked yeah. out all around. Yeah. So then you just have these like very clear harvest windows. And I saw on your website, you don't even promise dates. It, it'll depend on when the flower starts coming on. So you give a sense. Yeah. That seems like a really reasonable way to focus your time as a farmer. Yeah, exactly. I'm not so, yeah, it, it's just easier and it's, I know what to expect. My customer knows what to expect. I feel like six weeks, it doesn't look nor feel so daunting for both the farmer side of things and the customer side of things. So it's just, like I said, it's been a win-win for us and the customer. So, yeah. Yeah. So you have the two batches of tulips, winter and spring, peonies in late spring, and then dahlias in fall. And then you also do some mixed bouquet options. The other thing I think that's brilliant about this too, with people choosing that flower season they want is, you know, like you were saying, people were like, oh yeah, flowers. I'm doing air quotes right now. That's sort of like the person who's never been in a CSA before. And they're like, I like vegetables. And then they get through the first season and they're actually like, well, I didn't mean zucchini, (laughs) you know? I mean, people have preferences. They might not even know it. So I think that's great that they just, you're literally telling them, these are the flowers you're going to get and they can get them all or choose their favorites and everybody's happy. Yep. Like I said, I, I learned that from the first season where people, like, it was October and I was getting oh, I wish you had some peonies this week. I'm like, "Mm, that's in May. (laughs) You know, so, yeah. So that's why I was like, okay, I think a better way to approach this is to go by what is recognizable to customers, right? So, Uh yeah. Yeah, it's just right there in the name. This is what you're getting. (laughs) Yeah. And I I think the something else I considered too was I think the first time around I made it, way too difficult for people to sign up. And I think because I, when I was like reading other people, like how they do their CSAs, I was getting scared because, and I was letting that affect me and how, and the sales process, right? So I was reading like people are like, oh yeah, you know, someone tried to back out of the CSA and oh, it was like a whole ordeal and it was so much back and forth. And I got really worried. So I remember I set up like a huge contract that you had to like read and check and sign and blah, blah, blah. And then I thought about it and I was like, that's really off-putting. If I was in their shoes, I would absolutely not want to purchase. I would see that. I wouldn't even read it. And I would go, never mind. 
never mind. <laughs> and flowers are supposed to be joyful. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, yeah. It's, so. uh, it shouldn't feel like paying your taxes or yeah. working with a so, lawyer to get your... Okay. Yeah. So for anyone considering a CSA, please make it an enjoyable sign-up process. Don't do what I did. <laughs> Yeah, I agree. We ran a vegetable CSA, a pretty big one for 15 years. And I also started out with like, okay, you know, here's your contract. And I don't know that it was really daunting, but I did have that mentality. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, I just learned over the years, okay, there's a certain percentage of our our CSA that's going to kind of flake out on us. And that's the cost of doing business. And I don't, I there's people I'm going to never recoup the money from and I don't need to work with them in a future year but usually it's because they have stuff going on in their life it's not because they're bad people so yeah I I mean it helps you know once you're established to feel a little more chill about one or two accounts flaking out but yeah it's definitely I think it helps to just realize that that's gonna be part of the process when you're doing the CSA and a little bit you know build that into how you price things a little bit yeah. I don't know. It, it's definitely tricky when you start making those agreements with people, but I don't know. We never got burned really badly in one year. It's not like half of our CSA would just not pay or something, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's been good observations. Yeah. <laughs> and is it, so is it growing to be a bigger part of your marketing at this point or? It is. And part of that is one, like I said, the, response to the CSA and also just what I would like to accomplish as a business. So a big part of what I do or what I would like to do is I would like to make flowers more accessible, not just to those that have the extra money to buy flowers all the time, you know? So I keep myself up at night because I think about like different <laughs> like different ways that I can do this and all sorts of stuff because it's something I'm really passionate about and part of the reason I'm so passionate about that is because just the and I what ultimately made me decide to continue on with this um, one big reason was when I got to market the joy the sheer joy and just the level of emotion that people display when it comes to flowers that really shocked me like it's a you may look at it and it may be a simple sunflower but to somebody it's made their day just by seeing a sunflower or even purchasing one a story that i have is that this was the moment that i was like all right we're doing this, this is it, was that this lady came and I had a super long line in front of me that everybody was waiting to like buy a bouquet, whatever, whatnot. And they were waiting to check out. And it was a super long line, super busy day. I was stressed out. But this lady, she cuts the line and she's like, I'm so sorry. And I, I know I could just pick a bouquet you have on your rack. They're all beautiful, but I have a really special request. So she, you know, was telling me what she wanted and she was like sunflowers and feverfew and she's like, yeah, just make it really, really bright and vibrant. I was like, okay, sure. 
So I make her bouquet. I hand it to her. And she starts like weeping. And she's like, these are good tears. These are happy tears. And then she explained to me that the bouquet was for her mother, who was dealing with Alzheimer's. And her mother was starting to lose her vision. But when she saw the bouquet and how I made it, she said that she knows when her mother sees it, because her the only thing her mother can really see are the bright colors, it will make her mother smile. So she's like, gosh, like, thank you so much. Thank you for taking the time out of your day to like make that for me. And I was like, I had no idea. And here I was annoyed, like, oh, great. What now? <laughs> but to her, it meant everything, just like a simple gesture like that. So yeah, you never know what anybody is dealing with. And I, I realized just the power that flowers can have. So from that moment on, that, that's when I started saying like flower power is a real thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's a real thing. And, you know, and beyond that, every season, someone always shares just a wonderful memory they have with me about flowers. And I'm always so grateful that I get to be the one to hear about that story, you know? So mm-hmm. Because to me, that's such a positive and healing thing to experience. I think everybody should be able to do that. That's part of why I want to make flowers. And when I say, I want like local, locally Mm -hmm. grown, fresh, Mm -hmm. organic flowers to be accessible to a larger audience, not just those with disposable income or those with that are not visually impaired. So yeah, that's kind of why I stick with the CSA and why over time my business is evolving and shifting its focus. So I think we'll always do markets on some level. And I actually do markets, not just as a way to move product, but I actually use it as a marketing tactic. Mm. So that's actually where I got my first CSA customers was markets. So that would be something that I suggest to all market farmers is just don't look at um, you being at the market as you moving product that for that week or that day, but think about it as a larger marketing opportunity. Think about your branding and get to know your fellow vendors because guess what they also become your customers <laughs> yeah yeah the vendors who sell other products for sure so yeah i mean like that's what happened to us the first year it was four people and they were purely just like regulars that came to the farmers market and then from there the vendors were like oh well <laughs> Hey, we see you here every week. What about this? And yeah. Or, hey, I told my mom about your flowers. She's going to sign up. So your story about that woman and that bouquet was so moving. I was like, we should just end the podcast interview right there. <laughs> but I have all these other things I want to ask you about. But it was so moving. It was a really profound moment for me. I was I, I was not expecting that that day. And I think had I not experienced that, I don't think I would be so passionate about what I do now. So 
I'm, I'm glad I did. I'm well, glad I did. And what a blessing and gift that she actually told you that, because I imagine there's a lot of people coming through your booth who could tell similarly moving stories, but who just don't necessarily think to pass them on. So to have that deeper knowledge of how your flowers are bringing joy and connection to people is really powerful and I'm sure very affirming and motivating. Flowers are very cool. I mean, you know, you're right in that they're a luxury item because we don't need them to live technically, but you know, they're not a luxury item in the way that like a really fancy watch is. There's still these gifts of the earth, right? It's like, yeah, we grow it in the field and it's so beautiful for such a short amount of time, which is how, the natural world is it's so it's a funny thing where it's a luxury item but it also is very earthy very natural and almost spiritual in that it's just it teaches you to just savor that moment when those flowers are so beautiful which is i think a lot of other luxury items are almost the opposite it's like defy death you know like defy death with this big fancy car and instead flowers are like look all we have is now yeah oh yeah Absolutely. Look at this beautiful thing. Yes, absolutely. And that's like, to me, I'm like, oh, that makes it even more important because all we have is now, you know, so. Yeah, beautiful stuff. On a more practical note, (laughs) (laughs) I do want to ask about your other marketing outlets. So you clearly you go to markets. What kind of marketing venues were you able to create for yourself in that regard? What markets have you connected with? Do you just do one market a week, a couple? Because I'm just kind of assuming you didn't get into Pike Place. That's a real legacy kind of market. Yeah, and I don't want to. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yes, I mean, that, fair enough. That is a really intense place. It is really intense. It's long days, really long days. It's like minimum 12-hour market days. And then on top of that, you still have to get to the farm to harvest for the next day. And most of those vendors are there every day, right? They're not necessarily, or more than one day a week. I mean, it's not like going to a normal farmer's market. It's like. Yeah. Minimum five days a week. Yeah. That's, so that's what I said. It's like yeah. running a store. Just. Yeah. Okay. If not five days, I've seen three days, but even then that's three days of like intense. Yeah. And like really intensity. And then when it's, it's busy, your, your day goes by and you're like. I don't know what day it is. I don't know what time it is. I'm tired. I'm hungry. Can we go home? Nope, we can't because we have to go to the farm and pick flowers for tomorrow. So, okay. <laughs> but yeah, so, so you're doing more traditional, like what people probably are familiar with, booths, seasonal farmers markets. Yeah. So I fully leaned into pop-ups. So I've tried farmers markets. I've tried a lot of them. But I think for me, what's really big is a community. So I kind of gauge our response to a community. If it's not what I think, if it's if it doesn't align with where I want our brand, then I won't go back there. Because a farmer's market compared to like a pop-up market, it's steady, right? So you're there every week, same day, same time. So with that, you start to become a pillar in that particular community that you're selling at every week. 
week. So I'm very, I'm a little more strategic when it comes to which farmers markets that I do. So I've settled on one, but the other markets that I do, they're all pop-up markets. And I did that intentionally because I think more on with pop-ups in terms of reach like spreading brand awareness, right? So I have a really large like delivery radius because I don't mind driving. Like I said, just focusing on the accessibility factor again. So I'm willing to drive. And if it means I can do a pop-up mm. in a city where I want to build a customer base, I will totally do it. And that has actually worked for us because you're increasing reach, you're increasing brand awareness so i've totally leaned more into the pop-up style of things and the pop-up style of things because it's a pop-up i can actually charge higher so. Uh-huh. so when you do these are you coordinating with businesses in the area and setting up in their parking lot or how are you making that happen where you just have the pop-up sales? Sometimes I do have to coordinate with businesses. Most of the time, I just piggyback off of another market. I know okay. that's going to happen there. So, like, for example, what I really like are makers markets, so art markets, right? So if I know there's an art market that's going to happen, mm-hmm. I will go, hey, how do you guys feel about having flowers at your market? And usually, more often than not, they are open to the idea because the flowers will attract attention. So they're like, yeah. So I've also noticed that in those types of markets, because they know that your product will attract attention, you usually get put in a really, really good spot. Mm. So so you end up selling really well um, at their market. So actually last year... I was just doing the math on this the other day. We had a 95% sellout rate at all the markets. Oh, wow. That we went to. So last year was one of the best years I had in terms of market sales. And that is, yep, that's why I said, like, if you take a little bit more time and be a little more strategic in how you approach markets, you can really make it work for you on a deeper level than just hey, I'm moving product, you know? So yeah, we've done really well in terms of markets. So because of that, that's, uh, well, it's allowing me to shift how frequent we do the markets, right? Because now our CSA is growing. Because our CSA is, is growing, I can, instead of being at a market every single week, I can be at three or maybe two in a month, right? Okay. So it's a blessing. I'm so looking forward to the season. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, what? I have a free weekend. I mean, and when I say free, it's not really a free weekend. Right. What, a weekend to weed or plant. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What that really means is, wow, I have time to be a farmer. I have time to be on my farm and get things planted and get things yes. weeded and watered. Wow. Right. So, I'm really looking forward to that instead of like all the time, like, oh, well, I know what I'm doing this weekend already. I'm at a market. So. Right. You're also part of a group called the Snow Co. Flower Collective, which I think has to have one of the best abbreviated names I've ever heard when you shorten that. It's Snow Co. Flow Co. 
which Snowco is Snohomish County in Washington State for people who don't recognize that. So tell me more about this marketing organization, what its purpose is and what it does for you and other growers. Yeah, so because I'm all about like community, right? And when I look at business, I'm totally like, look, there's a power in numbers, especially, and because I'm in flowers, I'm I'm speaking on the, the flower industry. Like in the flower industry, what you have to understand is that like 80% of the flowers are being imported into the United States, right? And I'm like, man, there's so many of us. If we just work together, we can provide a large quantity of flowers, right? So that's where the idea of a collective group, a collective selling group comes into play. But here in the Seattle area, outside of Seattle proper, there really is no direct channel for local flowers. People are not like, and if they're, I mean, they're like, yes, there's a lot of farmers, but they're the sales access, the product access is really fragmented, right? Because instead of being like, hey, you can come here and get local flowers, it was, oh, I have to go to 20 different farmers. I have to go to 20 different farms that day just to get exactly what I want. And you're talking about more for like florists or people who are doing floral work right now, right? As opposed to consumers? Yeah, florists or even just retail customers. Okay. So... I was like, instead of working against each other, why don't we come together and work together? Because I think by improving product access, we in turn will be improving all of our business, right? And not just for us, but for farmers everywhere. So last season was our first season. I really did not know what to expect. I went into it with zero expectations. I even had someone flat out tell me it was a terrible idea. Oh, I was like, yeah. okay, <laughs> well, we'll just have to see if it really is. <laughs> and it ended up being a raving response. So again, very moving. I was like, wow. Like I was really shocked. And like, I think the first and second market, I like shed some tears on when I was by myself, because I was like, wow, like, that's really powerful. Like, again, going back to what I said earlier, flower power is a real thing. Yeah, it's a real thing. Like seeing the way it moves people is very empowering. And yeah, we, we would get asked like, oh, who were your customers? I think I had my market manager like track foot traffic. It was even we had like 50%. Florists, 50% retail. We don't charge like a higher pricing tier for retail sales. And I wanted that just to improve, again, accessibility. So that was really cool. And we are in the works of planning our second season. So what that's also turned into too is like an educational group, right? So a lot of the farmers that are in the collective they are new farmers. So new meaning they are between like the one to three year mark of farming. Some are where I am, where we're coming into like the three to five year mark. But for the most part, everyone has been a farmer for under 10 years. 
And so, yeah, I do have an educational coordinator in the group. So she sets up a bunch of opportunities where we can learn. We have an event where we have, we're bringing in a CPA, a certified accountant. We are bringing her in and she's going to walk us through taxes. How should you? Great. Yeah. And I think that's something as a business owner, you don't think about until you have to. (laughs) So she's, and you know, it's tax season right now. Yes, it is. Yeah. So (laughs) it was kind of perfect timing. So, and last year we got to tour two or three different farms, maybe four different farms last year. And that's one of my favorite things. That's one of the ways I like to learn is attending farm tours, right? So yeah, it's been a really, really great opportunity that just kind of happened by chance. Cool. So it's both a like a peer support group, but you also market together on some regularity and yeah. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Okay. So does the markets you do together, are they kind of like a mini version of a flower market? Like you said, florists are coming and it's pretty much a farmer's market, but everybody there is selling flowers. flowers. Okay. Yeah. Because it's one day a week. It's really early in the morning, but the farmer is there or somebody from their farm is there. So that's the other thing that I was watching with customers. They loved being able to like interact with the farmer and get to know more about the farm, know more about their growing practices. And I know that florists were just really happy to be like, hey, so I have a wedding that has this color scheme and it's in like two weeks. Do you know if you'll have that in two weeks? Or, hey, I want to come back next week because I need more of this. Do you think you'll have more of this? So I think just that face-to-face, real-time communication was very valuable to both florists right. and retail customers. Yeah, and so. then to have access to so many flower farmers at once. I imagine for florists, especially doing weddings, for people who care about things like having local flowers, which, of course, I think everybody should care about, but not everybody does. That's such a great resource for them to have all those farmers in one place and be able to choose from everybody's selection. Yeah, Absolutely. And from a farmer standpoint, you know, it also felt really good to be like, hey, I don't have pink zinnias, but I have someone here looking for pink zinnias. Who has pink zinnias? And someone will be like, oh, I do. I got pink zinnias. Send them my way. Awesome. That felt really, really good to do. Yeah. Sounds like a great organization with a really fun name. (laughs) So you are coming into, what is this, your fifth season Fourth, fifth season, because you got and started in 2020. Season. Fourth season. Yeah. Okay. So looking, that's still relatively new for a farm, although I'm sure it's starting to feel a lot calmer than those first couple of years. Okay. So, but looking ahead, what kind of long-term challenges are you facing for your farm? And what kinds of steps are you and Nick taking to meet those challenges as you go ahead? I think climate is always one. That's obviously changing. And I think it, just since I've been a farmer in the short time I've been a farmer, the climate is different now than when I started just four years ago. So yeah, I think that's one, trying to get ahead of that, preparing for that. That's always a challenge. I think time is my most valuable resource. And I think as we grow, I notice that my role 
is evolving more and more on the farm. So I think that will definitely impact the farm. And I hope for the better. And what I mean by that is like, I've noticed that I, you know, I'm, I'm getting more speaking engagements like this, you know, I'm getting more cool opportunities like this, and I'm getting just larger business opportunities. So yeah, like, so slowly, I'm growing more into being like the, the face of the farm, right? So, and that has a role in responsibilities of its own. So I think as I lean more into that, that will definitely affect the farm. I'm also in school, for those of you that don't know. And that ultimately, I mean, it affects the farm right now. So the question, the looming question has been, what am I going to do post-school? Am I going to be a full-time farmer? Am I going to go part-time? I don't know, to be honest. And my decision on that can affect will affect the farm in the long run. So there's, I, I think more things that will affect the farm in the long run that I can, in the foreseeable future that I see is more like my personal decisions. Right. And uh, that's honestly, for me, that's a little scary. Like what do like my decision, a decision I make for myself, what is that going to be like for the business? Right. How is that going to affect the business? So I think that's, more of the things that are going to affect the farm in the long term scheme of things. It's, it's all up to me. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I'm like, Oh man. <laughs> yeah. It's wild. Isn't it with businesses of this scale, how integrated they become with our personal lives and mm-hmm. how much there's so much effect back and forth in a way that is very different than having a job. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Whew, it can be intense. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, no, definitely it is, it is intense and it's a lot of uh, pressure and it's like, oh, what's, what's going to happen now? And, you know, you never know, you never know the impact of your decisions in the moment. I saw on your Instagram account, you have a pinned post. I really appreciated talking more about the Hmong experience in the Pacific Northwest and sort of the history of how the Hmong farmers landed there, which was one I didn't know about, even though I grew up in the area in that time period. But apparently King County, which is the county that Seattle is in, and Pike Place Market, this big market we've talked about a lot. And I think it's kind of famous, so I assume people knew which one we're talking about. But if you don't, it's the one that's in like every montage of Seattle you'll ever see in your life. (laughs) A big red public market sign. (laughs) Yeah. They sponsored Hmong farmers to immigrate to the area to grow for the market and farm. And you said that 80% of the flowers sold at the market to this day are grown by Hmong farmers, which is incredible. I'm curious, you are obviously adjacently involved in that actual direct lineage of that program, but now you're off on your own. I'm curious about if you see your farm working in that same lineage and in that same tradition, or how you see your farm working in the community of Hmong farmers that have been in the area for a long, look, several decades now? Yeah, so I do. You know, uh, like I don't have any kids. I don't know if I will, but <laughs> in the event that I, I do, I would totally hope 
that. I pass the lineage of flower farming onto them. I don't expect them to be a flower farmer by any means, but you know, I do want them to understand the history and the impact that it's had on the Hmong community. But honestly, I think my role, a big role I have as a farmer is to be a representative, not just of BIPOC people in general, right, but of the Hmong farmers. And like I mentioned earlier, I'm not originally from the Pacific Northwest. I'm from the Midwest. I'm from the Twin Cities area. I'm from St. Paul, Minnesota. So, and in St. Paul, it has the largest Hmong community in the entire nation, right? It's like 95,000 people currently growing. So, like, I grew up fully being in my identity as a Hmong American. Like, I could be like, I'm Hmong, and everybody was like, oh, okay, that's cool. Or like, oh, that's awesome. And they would know something about the Hmong culture, whether it was the food, the language, or, you know, somebody they know, a friend, whatever, right? But when I moved out here, and I was like, I'm Hmong, I was really surprised. And I, and I think it was just like an adjustment period for me, but I was really shocked when the response I got was, oh, you're Mongolian? And I was like, well, no, <laughs> I am not. But, and then it was kind of like a reality check for me, like, oh. And for me, it was really sad and kind of heartbreaking because I was like, man, the Hmong have been selling flowers at of all places, Pike Place Market, an internationally known market, for 40 years, and the local community, you're not familiar with the Hmong people. That was really heartbreaking for me. But then as I got into the family trade, I started to realize why. And it's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing at all. But it's just like, we're very humble people. We're a very humble community. So we don't want to disturb the flow and we kind of just want to be left alone and do our own thing. If you look back at the history of Hmong people, guess what? We've always done that no matter where we were, where, where we settled. We've always been like that. So I think for me, I made a conscious decision to not be like that. And like I said, it's representation. I was listening to podcasts. I did not hear another Hmong farmer. I would love to. I would love to hear another Hmong farmer on a platform like this. I was reading a mag- ASCFG Cut Flower magazine. I don't see a Hmong farmer writing an article in there. So it was moments like that that I was like, I think that needs to, to change. And I think that change starts with me, with what I do, right? So for me, it's become a conscious decision to be visible and to use my voice and just just to be present right because i just want my people to be seen and remembered because we've you guys can google Hmong people and the the history that we've had in the united states and our contributions to the country but i don't want those to be like swept aside and forgotten at some point right so yeah, so that's part of why I, I do what I do too, is I want to be visible. And whether this actually, talking about this takes me back to a conversation I had with another Hmong farmer last last season. She said to me, so 
I don't know you. Why is it that I don't, I don't know you? Like you're in the community and whatnot. Right. And this, my response to her was good. (laughs) Then I said, don't get me wrong. It's not that I don't want you to know me. I do, but here's what I realized was that you and I, just by being Hmong and especially Hmong women, we are already connected to one another. Sooner or later, we are going to cross paths, sister. What I am out here to do is I want everybody that's not Hmong to know that I'm Hmong. Because if they know at least one Hmong person, when they meet you and you tell them that you're Hmong, they're not going to be surprised. They are not going to sweep aside your identity and make it sound like it doesn't matter or ask you a really stupid, ignorant question that you should not have to waste your time and energy on answering. Right. Uh, I was like, to me, those things matter to not only me, but our community as a whole. So if you don't know who I am, that's wonderful. But (laughs) in exchange, I hope that someday you meet somebody that knows exactly like who the Hmong people are and they appreciate you for being a beautiful Hmong woman. So, Mm. yeah. (laughs) Thank you for sharing your thoughts on all that. I, I really appreciate it. I mean, part of what I love about getting to do this podcast and other work I do is I feel like who actually has done the work and contributed to farming in the U.S. is not, I'm not going to say not always, has not been the face mm-hmm. of farming that's presented to the public in a lot of ways. And there's a lot of really important stories about out there that just haven't been told. And definitely a big one of those has been the immigrant experience around farming, you know, people who move here in the last couple decades or century and contribute hugely both with their knowledge and their work and their entrepreneurship. And yeah, I think it's time to acknowledge all of those stories and be grateful. Exactly. And I feel like by acknowledging and starting to be more diverse and inclusive as an, an industry as a whole in agriculture, we could only benefit from that. Oh, 100%. Yeah, just think about all the the knowledge and like advancements that can happen if that just happened, you know what I mean? So it literally just kind of like gave me shiver chills thinking about that and how exciting that idea is of everybody actually being able to share their stories and their knowledge and experience in a way that I don't know. I just think it's time. That's where we need to go as a farming community into the future, have all the information, have all the stories, share what's worked for different people. And because we have a lot of challenges ahead of us, like you said, climate, that's going to affect all of us, regardless of our background. It's just one example. So it's time to share. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Okay. And on that note, I do have one last question for you. I I like to ask Oh my guess this, since our audience is market farmers or people who want to be, I do love asking people about kind of practical, specific tips and tricks that maybe we can share with each other. So I'm curious. I know, Tracy, that these kinds of questions always sort of feels like I'm asking a kindergarten, what's your favorite color? But this is the farmer equivalent. <laughs> <laughs> what's the best thing that you and your family have done for your farm so far? It could be like a tool or 
a philosophy around your business, anything, I don't know. Something that I see my mother do every time we plant something is she says a, a little prayer to the universe, right? And what that taught me was to be grateful because at the end of the day, you're only human. You're really small compared to the rest of the world, right? And and my farm is like, I can see the Cascade Mountains from my farm. So I look at the mountains every day when I'm on the field and I'm reminded all the time, like, wow, we are really small. So be grateful, be humble. What I get to do, and I look at it as bringing beauty into the world and spreading joy. For me, I'm very humbled that I have this opportunity, right? So, and I, so I would think that's one thing is uh, be grateful, be humble, be gracious to your customers, be gracious that you have the opportunities that you do because there's someone else in the world that doesn't. And so be happy. And if you're not happy, please talk to somebody about it. You know, life is short. Enjoy it. Have a blast. <laughs> Flower power. Flower power is a real thing, y'all. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so wonderful. Thank you so much, Tracy, for taking the time out of winter. I know you're busy with school and prep for the season. Is there anything else you want to share or how can people connect with you if they want to learn more about Jonko or you? Yeah. Uh, first of all, I want to thank you for this opportunity, Katie. It's been wonderful. So yeah, this is a great start to the 2024 season for me. So thank you so much. But if you would like to follow along in our flower journey or uh, get to know more about Jonko Flowers, uh, you can visit our website, johncompany.com. And our uh, social media tags, we're on Instagram and Facebook. It's just Jonko Flowers. So oh, I'll see you there. <laughs> that sounds great. And I'll make sure those are in the show notes too. So people can just clicky clicky if they want from their phones. Yeah. Thank, Thank you. you again so much, Tracy. I hope you have a wonderful 2024 season and it was great chatting. Thank you. Same to everybody. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the growing for market podcast. If you've been enjoying the show, please consider giving us a follow and a rating or review. It really helps others find the podcast. For more tips and tricks from farmer to farmer, check out our magazine at growingformarket.com. Whether you're a commercial grower or just want to grow like one, subscribe to Growing for Market magazine for the nitty gritty of growing, marketing, and the business of market farming. We publish 10 issues per year with articles written by experienced farmers on topics ranging from tools and techniques to farm business operations and marketing. If you've been listening to the Growing for Market podcast and haven't yet checked out Growing for Market magazine, we've made a change so you can now try the magazine for free. We've added a free month to the beginning of all first-time subscriptions. Try out the digital or paper magazine subscription for a month, and if it's not for you, cancel within 28 days and you'll never get billed. Even the most basic subscription gets you a year of the magazine, plus 150 back issues from the last 15 years. Digital subscriptions start at just $30 per year, 
So head on over to growingformarket.com and subscribe today to benefit from over three decades of writing by farmers for farmers in Growing for Market magazine.